Whether we're aware of it or not, the past year has introduced most everyone to a new language. Words that we used in one context, such as equality, equity, diversity, belonging, and systems, are now taking on new meaning and are being used in new contexts. It's not always easy to keep up, but for the sake of courageous conversations, it's important that we try. Our question this episode. How do we talk respectfully and directly about matters of race and privilege when we're still learning the vocabulary? Welcome to episode eighty of How Can I Say This, where we look to build connection and community through courageous conversations. I'm your host Beth Vilo, and it's really good to be with you here today. Since we're now at our 80th episode, I thought it was a good time to take a look back at what have been the most popular topics with you, the listeners. I wasn't very surprised to see that the third most popular episode was my conversation with Kwame Christian about how to talk about race at work. When I started this podcast, my intention was to make sure we didn't steer away from the tough stuff, the topics that are the most challenging to talk about. Otherwise, we wouldn't be thinking, "How can I say this?" We'd just say it. I see today's episode as another layer to what Kwame and I discussed, with a specific focus on equity and how we talk about race in professional settings. My guest today is Arlene Koth. Founder of OPC Consulting, Arlene has over two decades of HR management and organizational planning experience, nearly twenty years of nonprofit experience, and fifteen years of C-suite executive leadership experience. She helps organizations ensure that they not only help their customers and constituents, but also focus on their employees. Arlene helps them implement sustainable practices that support workplace equity, internal cultural change goals. And business objectives. Arlene has a BA in communications and is certified as a senior professional in human resources. She serves on a number of boards and volunteer committees, and she resides in Cincinnati, Ohio. Hi, Arlene. Welcome to How Can I Say This? I'm so delighted to welcome you to the conversation. I'm so excited to be here, Beth. Thank you so much. Well, I I so admire your work, and as we heard in the bio, you're up to great things in the world. <laughs> you're Cincinnati based, but have a greater reach. And and one of the things that I want to start out with is not making assumptions about when we talk about DEI that everybody knows exactly what we're talking about and how that shows up. So, it's an acronym. <laughs> And a topic that has gone way more mainstream in the past few years. So, would you start us out just by defining DEI and and how you see it through your lens? So, I focus very strictly in the workplace, and so when I look at things from a workplace lens, I actually like to look at things probably a little askew of what we've traditionally seen DEI. So, I like to start with equity, and we define equity. We basically utilize that Maslow's hierarchy.、Um, hopefully, everybody is is somewhat familiar with it. But at that very bottom layer are those basic needs. That's what we have to foundation. Build on, and equity is that basic need inside of the workplace. So equity is simply defined、um, with with my work is how an organization treats its employees. 
So it's how resources are distributed. It's how people are treated. It's what the policies and practices of the organization look like that make sure that everyone has an opportunity to succeed inside of that organization, regardless of what their different characteristics might be. And then as you move up into those psychological needs um, on that hierarchy, that's where we start looking at inclusion. And inclusion is basically defined as how people feel welcomed, if they feel valued. It's that sense of belonging and fitting in. And we look at that pretty much how the individuals inside of the organization treat each other. Um, And in order for them to really treat each other well, that equity has to be there first, that that environment, that culture has to be there, and then we can work on the individuals. And then at the very top is where we look at diversity. And we look at diversity, I mean, really, it's just counting. It's the numbers. It's the different aspects of humans that make us different. That is actually what diversity is. The reason why we put it at the top of the hierarchy is because when we think about diversity, we can get diversity. We have diversity in the world. That's a given. What we don't have is inclusion and equity. And so when we look at diversity at that self-fulfillment place um, at the very top of the pyramid, that's because we're looking at it as transformational. Now we've created this culture and this space where diversity can thrive throughout the entire organization. So from frontline all the way up to executive leadership, board level, all of those things, that's where it culminates. And that's where you can see that diversity distributed throughout the organization. So that's how we describe it. And that's how we go about looking at it inside of our work. Yeah. So when I love that you're putting equity first and as that foundation. And I'm another thing that I have encountered is people using the words equality and equity interchangeably. And they're two different things. They're kind of two sides of a coin. Can you help differentiate between those two things for us? Absolutely. It's always great to have these conversations because these are the things I think that get in people's way because we've been taught so many different things and then it gets all convoluted. But when we look at equity, that's looking at each person and saying, or each group even, um, and saying, what are their needs versus equality is I'm going to treat everybody exactly the same. I just had a meeting with a a great client, uh, even just this week, and we were talking about this. Their concern is always like, well, if we do things differently, then we're going to get in trouble for doing things differently. We could get into legal trouble and all those, those types of concerns, which are very legitimate concerns. We're not talking about creating disadvantage. What we're talking about with equity is getting rid of advantages that are unfair to groups of people. And so now we're starting to say, okay, this group has been disproportionately disadvantaged. We want to make sure that now they are no longer disadvantaged. And so that's the difference. So equity is saying, okay, we have to fix some of these things that have created these um, disadvantages for certain groups of people. Whereas equality is we're going to give everybody the exact same thing, no matter what. And there's a great cartoon. There's probably a, a gazillion cartoons, but I use the cartoon to, to drive that point home of, You know, you can give a tall person and a shorter person a box to stand on to see over a fence. The tall person can already see over the fence. The box that you gave the shorter person still doesn't get them to be able to see over the fence, but we gave them the same thing. That's equality. 
equity is where the taller person doesn't need that resource. So we don't give them that resource. The shorter person needs a different resource. So we give them the resource they need in order to see over that fence. That helps, I think, when people can visualize what equality and equity look like. Yeah, I I love that visual. I remember seeing it years ago and it was like, oh, okay, I get it now. Um, And sometimes it takes a cartoon, right? (laughs) To fully get us to. And then I've seen that cartoon carried out to where the fence is removed which I, and I can't remember what word they put with that. Liberation. Liberation. Yes. Thank you. Exactly. Because even the fence is representing a barrier between like the people on the inside watching the ball game, I think it is. And the people on the outside who need something extra perhaps to be able to enjoy what everyone else is enjoying. I'm going to share that cartoon on the episode page because it is such a powerful way of illustrating that. And just a follow-up question. One thing I'm noticing is more and more the words belonging and or justice being added to diversity, equity, inclusion. Um, And you talked about inclusion encompassing that belonging and welcome. What do you think of that extension of those words and even how adding belonging in addition to inclusion might take us deeper. So I am going to borrow this from um, the author Brene Brown. Um, I'm sure some of your listeners will be uh, familiar with her work. She gave a definition that I love to use. Um, She talked about belonging versus fitting in. And she said, fitting in is basically where you have to change who you are to be welcomed. So I have to fit in with what everybody else is doing. Whereas belonging was, I get to bring my full self. I get to be me and I'm still welcomed. And so I believe that when we look at inclusion, it's funny, Beth, because a lot of times we hear the words diversity and inclusion as like one whole word. They aren't separated. They're just one word. And if we talk about diversity, we're talking about inclusion. I absolutely know that they are connected. I get that, but they are different because I can have an entire group of people that are different in a room. I've got diversity, but if they don't all have a voice, they don't feel valued. They don't feel welcome. They feel like they have to somehow assimilate or change themselves in order to be part of this group. We haven't really created inclusion. We haven't created that sense of belonging. We know what it's like to have groups of friends where we've got people with different personalities, different backgrounds. And we get to just come in and be us. We laugh at each other. We talk to each other. We listen to each other, all of those things. And we feel like we belong in that group. We've also been in places where we know that we're not supposed to speak. We're not supposed to really do anything. Our job is to sit off on the sideline. That's not being included. That's not belonging. So those are the kinds of things that we can practice even in the workplace that we often forget. You hear words like, oh, well, we want tolerance. I don't want to be tolerated. Like I tolerate a toothache. I tolerate a headache. I tolerate those things until I can get rid of them. And so you think about we're tolerating people. That doesn't seem right. So we want to include people. We want them to feel like they are part of the group. And so there's lots of ways that you can do that. But that's where the belonging comes in. Yeah. And I love that we're we're getting into things that are very um, sort of subtle shades of nuance with the language that we use to talk about this. And, and I so appreciate that calling out tolerance. Um, that is not the goal, <laughs> right? Not the goal. 
And so that leads me a, a bit to my second question, which is, you know, you've shared with me that you really care deeply about talking publicly, emphatically, and unapologetically about DEI. And what I've encountered is people often feel awkward and apologetic (laughs) about talking about DEI, especially probably in the workplace, because it's sometimes crosses into some of those uncomfortable and sometimes even taboo sorts of areas. Um, When it comes to DEI in the workplace, how can we be more public, emphatic, and unapologetic? And where do we start those conversations? Like what, what should we consider as we start those conversations? So Beth, one of the things that I tell my clients and anybody that I talk to, um, I have a superpower and it's a hidden one until you get to know me. And my superpower is that I am very good at making people uncomfortable. I believe that that is the key to having these conversations is we've got to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. We've got to embrace that discomfort because that's where we push through to actually start making changes. As long as we're comfortable, what's the motivation to change? So until we start really getting uncomfortable and having some of these hard conversations about some complex topics, we just continue to pretend that they're not there. And we do a lot of surface level things that don't actually get down to what the issues are. And that to me is even more dangerous than being uncomfortable. So when I talk about the equity in the world, and I mostly focus on equity, our world is going to be diverse. We're not stopping that. We can clearly look around and it's continuing to be diverse. It doesn't make it inclusive and it doesn't make it equitable. But we, to me, we can't get to being inclusive until we get to equity. So I'm always talking about equity, whether it's gender equity, whether it's racial equity, whether it's abilities and disabilities equity. All of those things are important for us to have conversations about. And some of them are awkward. We have to embrace the fact that it's going to be awkward. We have to embrace the fact that, you know, I have people who say, well, I'm afraid to do anything because what if I make a mistake? And I said, embrace the fact that you're going to make a mistake and then go do it. Because then you can go and you can fix the mistake. But if you don't do anything, you're being complicit in perpetuating this cycle of inequity. So I personally have done a lot of work and I still have so much work to do. So everybody's on a journey. And we're all at different places of our journey and creating an inclusive and equitable community workplace society is not a destination. It is a journey because we're going to constantly and continually become more and more diverse. And so we learn more and more about the things that are changing. So that's why I think that having these conversations and not being apologetic about bringing up these issues, we've been apologetic about it for a long time. We've made sure that people in whatever power group we happen to be talking about are comfortable. Therefore, we have not seen any significant changes. We do have to create safe spaces. So I'm not talking about a discomfort in a way where somebody feels like they are physically or emotionally unsafe. But sometimes people convolute safety and discomfort. You know, I could argue the fact that when I worked out with my personal trainer, that 
it wasn't very safe because I felt very uncomfortable doing those extra push-ups. But at the end of the day, nothing bad was going to happen to me. I was uncomfortable, but I still had to go do it. So we have to really start to figure out what safety and discomfort look like and separate the two and truly embrace that discomfort. Yeah. As you talked about that trainer, I thought of that phrase, no pain, no gain. <laughs> and and speaking as a privileged white cis woman, I know I have stepped in it big time, numerous times over the past couple of years, and it was painful. And I learned lessons that I would not have learned otherwise. While it was painful, I'm grateful for those experiences and for the people who either had patience with my mistakes or those that didn't have patience with my mistakes and perhaps rightly so. And I will tell you, Beth, when I talk about this, I have to figure out a better way sometimes to calibrate myself because when you get this involved in this kind of work, and um, I do consider myself to be very passionate about the work, I don't always have a volume button. (laughs) So (laughs) being able to adjust up and down, I either have an on or off button and my, my on and off button is stuck on on. So I have to constantly calibrate and say, is this a space where I need to actually talk about this, even if I notice something? And so as we all step out and say, I want to join this journey of creating more equity, um, I would suggest that you don't do what I've been struggling with and break your on-off button and leave it on-on. Figure (laughs) out how to calibrate Mm -hmm. yourself and turn it down and turn it up when necessary so that you get the most out of your relationships and you can truly build some of that trust and comfort so that when you do have to be uncomfortable, people know that's not the only switch that you have is discomfort. Yeah, yeah, great point. And so when we think about what needs to be considered when we're having these conversations or when we want to start having these conversations, it sounds like understanding and embracing discomfort. The goal is not to avoid discomfort, but to actually lean into it. Because I think, as you said, if we're not feeling uncomfortable, nothing's going to change. There's no motivation there. And then in order for that to happen, to create that brave space where people can feel the discomfort without, um, without shutting down you know, without feeling unsafe. And, you know, it's funny that you say shutting down because that is something that um, I often struggle with, with clients. And one of the things that I tell them is that we want to make sure that we honor people's feelings. Yeah. You get to feel how you feel. You don't have to legitimize it. You don't have to justify it. What I want people to start thinking about is how they calibrate their behavior once they feel those feelings and that they actually take the time they need to process those feelings. That doesn't mean the conversation is going to stop because you feel some type of way. We want the conversation Mm -hmm. to keep going, but I'm not going to attack you for how you feel, but we're going to continue having the conversations to get down to why do you feel the way you do? Um, And so again, it's not to justify or make them legitimize it, but just to get to the heart of where did this come from? And that takes patience and that takes empathy. And I sometimes am short on both, (laughs) admittedly. And I know that I need patience and empathy when I step in it, as you, as you said, because I step in it pretty regularly myself. So, you know, I don't care how much you study things. I don't know how, care how much your lived experiences, you're going to face something that's new to you and you're going to say or do the wrong thing. That's where being open to growing is important. 
So it is awkward and it is embarrassing and sometimes just flat out mortifying that you've done something that you're like, oh my God, how did I do that? Right. But when you allow yourself to just process those feelings and then figure out now, how do I calibrate my behavior? That's where we start having those really important and profound growth moments. Yeah. Can I share one instance where I felt mortified and that it was a great learning moment on, on multiple levels. There's a group in in Muskegon called Community Gathering Initiative, and they gather every couple of months to have open and candid conversations about race, race relations, and particularly in our community. And we were responding to a video that they had shared. And I, um, this goes along with that, how it, how we can sort of self-impose awkwardness on ourselves by feeling like I don't want to say the wrong thing. I sometimes will get hung up on like, okay, do I say African-Americans? Do I say black people? Do I say people of color? You know, what's the proper thing? Because sometimes it feels like, okay, this week it's this way. Next week, it's going to be this way, you know, and don't say this because you might offend somebody. And so, so my mind was quickly like shuffling through the possibilities. And what I ended up saying was non-white. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that. I was mortified. You know, it just popped out of my mouth. And as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, holy cow, that was just wrong on so many levels. And they didn't react. You know, nobody like was like, you know, I can't believe she said that or anything, right? Because it was a relatively safe space, you know, Um, but at the same time, they didn't really know me. I didn't really know them. But anyway, and, and then my mind, as soon as I realized it, I'm like, oh, should I say something? Should I say, you know, I just want to acknowledge that I said that and that was a bad choice of words and, you know. And then I, I just let it go. You know, I thought, who would that be for? Would that be so I feel better? And so I, I let it pass. Right. And, you know, that probably happened like two years ago. <laughs> and I think about it every time I am um, speaking about and, and it prompted me to learn, OK, what is the appropriate thing to say or what when do you use different phrases? You know, like choosing to use people of color is different from like, don't say people of color when you mean black people. Am I correct about that? For me, absolutely. Yes, for you. And and that's part of it, right? For you. But then for somebody else, it might be like, no, you know, not appropriate. It's, it's when you share that, um, <laughs> that experience, I'm laughing, not at you. I'm laughing yeah. because we've all had them. I don't generally step in it when it comes to race, because I, that, that is one of the areas where I do a lot more work. Yeah. But I have stepped in it on so many other things. I've talked about disabilities. I've said things mm-hmm. that were, oh, darn it. I didn't know I couldn't, I, I wasn't supposed to say, I didn't know how that felt to somebody else because that's not my lens. That's not my reality. So I think to your point, acknowledging it, you haven't forgotten that. So that mm-hmm. makes you more sensitive to something that you would not have been sensitive to before because it's not your reality. So was it a mistake? Sure. And you learn something very valuable from it. And if we take it that way, instead of saying, well, I made a mistake, I'm just giving up and I'm not doing anything. (laughs) Because that happens too. So a lot of times people will feel that way. And all of a sudden they just are like, fine. That to me is also a sign of unacknowledged privilege. Yeah. Because if your particular being, whoever you are, is never in question, it's considered the norm. 
whether that's race, whether that's gender, whether it's gender identity, whether it's sexual orientation, whatever it might be, if yours has always been considered the norm, that's a whole lot of privilege. And everybody now, privilege is like a bad word. Don't say the P word because people get offended. And you know what I say? Let them be offended. It's true. We all have some level of privilege inside of our lives in general. I can't say every single person because I don't know every single person, but we have some level of, when we know that we've got some level of privilege and we can admit it, guess what we can do with that? We can actually be helpful. It's not a bad word. Yeah. You had zero choice in being born a white cisgender female. You, you had no say in that. You're here. That is, there's some level of privilege to that in our current society. So how do I use that? Those are the kinds of things that we should be having those conversations about versus using them as indictments or using them as defense for why we're the way we are. We've all been nurtured by a society that has been inequitable for a very long time. And so we're either on the side of the inequity or we're on the side of the advantage or the privilege, but we've all been impacted by it. So now how do we utilize if we've been on the side of advantage to help create more equity? Yeah. I'm going to have you back if you're willing, because I want to unpack the privilege piece a little bit more. Um, and the, the relationship to equity and um, the lens through which we see things, because it's so critical. And just to, you know, to wrap up our conversation, one of the things that I also know is very important to you, and that I've been noticing more myself lately as well, is that so many times, especially in the workplace, but it could show up anywhere in communities and churches and et cetera, we're issuing these DEI statements where putting out these sometimes platitudes <laughs> about <laughs> this work. And, and you said something to me about how much optical or performative statements are damaging. How can you tell if your statement is performative? And what does it look, sound, and feel like to go deeper than that? So almost nothing irritates me more than performative or optical allyship. And basically what that is, is like you were saying, Beth, it's platitudes. It's things like, you know, we care about Black lives. I am so glad that you do. And I'm so glad that you were bold enough to put a statement out there. But what it looks like when you're for real about it is that you actually are going back and you're looking inside of your actual organization. And you're saying, I put this statement out here. We put this statement out here, but nothing in our organization changed at all. That's performative. That's optical. We put it out there for the rest of the world. But guess what? You probably have employees that if you went and talked to them, they could give you a list of things you could start doing that would actually make a difference. You can look at your board of directors, whether you have a a, a for-profit board or a nonprofit board, whatever that might be. If you don't have a board, look at your executive leadership and ask, what does that look like? Why does it look the way it does? What can we do to start creating more diversity throughout our entire organization? And I go all the way back to when we talked about those definitions of what equity, inclusion, and diversity look like. And diversity was at the top because that's where we start to see it filter through the entire organization. It's not just having going out and grabbing a bunch of Black people and bringing them into your organization as frontline workers. Like, 
Oh, look, we went and grabbed some black people. Look at us. We're diverse. We can check the box on diversity and inclusion and go back to business as usual. That's the problem. We can't go back to business as usual. We have to change up business because the workplace was never truly built in its history at the very beginning to be inclusive. It was built for a certain group of people. So we've taken that same model and made some minor tweaks here and there, but we will have to actually start dismantling parts of that model if we're going to be really allies in creating an equitable space, an equitable workplace, equitable communities. So it's really taking a look at our own organization and saying, where are our gaps in equity and what will we do to fix it? And by no means, organizations didn't get to where they are today, yesterday, and they won't get to where they want to be aspirationally tomorrow. But if we don't start and we don't make it urgent and we don't make it uncomfortable, we will not get there. We've been talking DEI for the last, at least um, my adult life, the last two and a half decades or more. And we have not made significant and sustainable changes throughout the entirety of organizations. So that's where you can see whether or not you're a performative ally or you're truly trying to make cultural change. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you. I, the words that stuck out for me were urgent and uncomfortable. And if your, if your statement, if your, even your initiatives don't have that sense of urgency and don't provoke discomfort, they're probably not going far enough or they're definitely not going far enough. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. We have so much fear about making people uncomfortable and, um, the other word that's popped up in a couple of times, and I think let, this is going to, I'm bookmarking this for our next conversation is shame and its connection, particularly to privilege and how that gets in the way of conversations that need to be had. And not just conversations. I, I, I've heard from um, numerous Black friends and colleagues, like, I'm sick of talking about this. I'm done talking about this. Well, it's it's actually, and I completely agree. I know that last year, this time, the fatigue really started to set in. And then we had the horrific events around um, George Floyd's murder. And all of a sudden, it's this flood of calls from people saying, well, what can we do different? What, like, this has been happening in the Black community for decades and generations. This just happened to be one of the more horrific ones that was videoed. That's the only difference. This is happening. I have brothers who I love who have told me horrible stories of when they have been um, mistreated and by, by police officers. This is where it gets exhausting because these things have been happening for a very, very long time. And so we sit down and we say, let's have another conversation. Well, me personally, I'm fed up with conversations. I want to see action. So my motto around everything is let's stop feeling good and let's start doing good. So we do a lot of stuff that makes us feel good. We have conversations. We have workshops and seminars and trainings and everybody walks away and we're holding hands and singing and we feel good, right? We're patting ourselves on the back. We feel good. And we go right back to what we were doing before. We didn't do anything. So the feeling good part has to stop now and we have to actually start doing something. Yeah. So anybody who's listening right now and is feeling like, okay, I'm going to do something and knowing, you know, this is a diverse audience. You know, some people are listening to this through their community lens, through their workplace lens, through their family lens. 
what's one action that somebody can take to move things forward? This is a simple one and it's a great start. You see something, you say something. It's really that simple. You know, we all have that uncle or aunt or somebody in our family that says things and you cringe, but nobody ever says, hey, Uncle John, um, you know, you probably shouldn't say that. And here's some reasons why. You might not stop him, but you've at least said something and made it clear that this is where you stand on things. Inside of the workplace, same thing. You're sitting in a meeting and the men constantly talk over the women and, you know, you're sitting there and perhaps you're a man and you see it finally because somebody said it to you. And now you can say, hey, hey, guys, hold on. She was talking. See something, say something. And if you can do something, those are, that's, that's a great first step. Awesome. I love it. Thank you so much for that. And, and I, I do hope you'll uh, agree to have another conversation with me and, and we can keep unpacking this. We can talk every week if you want, Beth. I know, right? It could just be the Beth and Arlene show. <laughs> well, thank you so much for your generosity and, um, and for the work you do. Thank you so much for having me and thank you for supporting the work that I do. I am so looking forward to bringing Arlene back so that we can look more deeply at the opportunities and challenges of privilege and how our awareness of it can influence the quality and productiveness of our conversations. I'm going to borrow from Arlene's parting advice of see something, say something, and use it as part of your call to action. Whether you're at work, at home, or out and about in your community, start noticing. Start noticing where you see imbalances or inequities. Start noticing how people relate to one another and how you relate to others, particularly when there are visible differences, such as race, gender, age, or physical ability. Do you notice someone being treated differently because of their identity? Do you find yourself being more or less patient or more or less talkative or more or less helpful with another person because of their identity? Sometimes you might not even know it's their identity, and this is part of the lens that I'm inviting you to be looking at things through, to ask yourself that question, what was my motivation for being more or less patient, talkative, or helpful, for instance? Because the first step to saying something is seeing it in the first place. If you feel you're very practiced at noticing and you're already looking at the world through that lens and you have a finely tuned radar for spotting inequities around you, then stretch into saying something. You can be as direct as you're able. I often, though, like going in what I call the side door, finding a way to address something without being confrontational, but still setting the record straight. Arlene mentioned how we all have an Uncle Joe, and that uncle might every once in a while make a questionable comment that makes us cringe. The front door would be saying, Uncle Joe, what you just said was racist, for instance. That might be a completely appropriate and very necessary way to handle the issue. But let's say you're at the dinner table with family, or you're out in public together, or Uncle Joe is sincerely oblivious to the harmful thing that he said. That's when the side door could be considered, perhaps saying to him, I don't agree with what you just shared, and there is a different way of looking at it, and then offering an example or your own perspective. You could also say, you know, what you just said could be hurtful to some people, and I really don't think that that's what you meant. And then get curious, ask, 
What did you mean by that? This means that you have to notice and move through any judgment that comes up for you. The benefit is that we're engaging Uncle Joe in dialogue, and by listening to him, we're making it safer to reflect back to him that what he said is harmful. It's going to take a lot of practice, and it's going to be uncomfortable. You might mess up, and like Arlene and I talked about, that's okay. There are some things we can only learn by experiencing them firsthand. Stretch yourself, but also treat yourself with compassion and patience. I hope that you've enjoyed this conversation and that you decide to share this episode with your friends, family, and colleagues who you think might find it interesting. I also appreciate your ratings and reviews on whatever platform you find this podcast. And please subscribe and come back for future episodes. I really want you to be part of this movement to bring more courageous communication into the world. This is Beth Bilo, and you have been listening to How Can I Say This? Our podcast producer is Paul Messing, and our theme music is by Brett Anderson. Thank you so much to Arlene for sharing her wisdom with us. Thank you for joining me today. And I invite you to take what you've learned here and use it to speak up, speak out, and speak courageously. Courageously.